Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest for today's show is David Orr, who is the founder and leader of Orr Partners, a firm he started about 35 years ago initially as a fee development company, mostly in the office sector, and then he's evolved now into much more different property types and in the co-investment role on most of his projects now. So this episode talks about his role in the company and his daily focus in the development industry. David, he discusses his mentorship role strategic planning and involvement in major transactions. He shares his background in construction. This is where he started his career and his passion for entrepreneurship of doing his own thing. His father was a general contractor, so he learned construction from an early age and uh, thrived in interest for that. So then he started out in the construction industry and eventually got into development through a partnership with Pete Scamardo, who was a developer in Northern Virginia in the 1980s. And then he joined the Lee Samus companies as well to learn development business. Then he subsequently started his own company and developed from there. So we cover various topics, including the importance of logistics and construction, the challenges and risks of real estate development, the transition from working for a company to starting one's own business, and the use of technology in construction. 
David also discusses his commitment to integrity and his experience with financing and his succession planning for his two sons who are now joining the company. So this is a wide ranging conversation. I will say that about David is he's very meticulous and very thorough and comes back frequently to the his integrity, which is, seems to be his, his key core value. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with David Orr. So David Orr, well, thank you for joining me on Icons of DCA Real Estate. I appreciate it. Sure, I'm happy to do it. Could you describe your role as founder and leader of War Partners and your focus day to day? Keep it, you know, only to your role and we'll speak about your company later. Thank sure. You. Well, so my role right now is really one of mentorship and strategic planning. And then I get involved in major transactions. Okay. So as far as strategy, talk about that a little bit. What, what, are, you, what are you thinking about every day? Well, so, you know, the interesting thing about real estate development is that it's got a lot of variables and it's controlled or, or it's dictated heavily by the macroeconomic conditions that are out there. It's a very interest rate sensitive program and it's also economy driven, economically driven. So if the economy is doing well, our customers on our project management side have new needs and that's what drives the business in general terms. Mm-hmm. And I assume product costs and things like that are important to you as well. Yeah. In fact, one of the very difficult things in today's market are hard costs and how you handle hard costs. And we've come up with some some interesting strategies on on how we can reduce hard costs on our projects and give us a competitive advantage. Maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. Yes. So tell us about your origins, youth and parental experience. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in the construction side of the business. I did. My dad was worked for a large contractor in New York City. I was born in Ohio. I like to tell people I'm from Montclair, New Jersey, because that's where I went to high school. Mm -hmm. I've lived in the D.C. area for over 45 years now. So how did Um, your dad get to New York from Ohio? Curiosity. He was hired by a contract. He started out of college. He went to Columbia University in New York and he had an engineering degree, and he was hired out of college to be to work with a contract, an Ohio-based contractor, and then subsequently, and he was born and raised in New York City. Oh, okay. And so he wanted to get back to New York and got got engaged by a company called HRH, which was a very large construction company at the Mm -hmm. time. Yep, and built a number of high-rise projects. So I was raised in a construction environment. Mm-hmm. So did you get on sites as a kid quite a bit or? I, you know, not a little bit. Yeah. My dad would take me out and would show me some things. And then ultimately what happened when I was in high school, he helped me get a job as a laborer. I was a union card carrying laborer in New York City. Wow. Working really hard. I'll bet. Making $5.25 an hour. But I saved that money to buy my first car. So did you work in Manhattan? Mostly? I did. I worked in Manhattan. So high-rise buildings mostly? Or? High-rise buildings mostly. Like one of the projects I worked on was Memorial Hospital. It's a big demolition project. And so we were there with sledgehammers and knocking down block walls and putting it in dumpsters and hauling it off site. Wow. It was very, You were very, in good shape then. Eh? I was in really good shape. <laughs> yeah. It was very tedious work, but it paid well. 
So did you do this and think, you know, I want to do this someday? I mean, this is really, I mean, it was in your blood. Was that kind of your thought process when you were a kid? Yeah, there were two things I would say that were in my DNA. All right. The construction side of it, because I was raised in the environment. Right. And the other thing that was in my DNA was and being an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to have my own business. Uh-huh. And there's an interesting story about how I went about trying to figure out how to start my own business. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that that was really what, you know, fueled my, mm-hmm. you know, my, my, my growth in the industry. So you went to high school in New Jersey. And then I guess you were always aiming, I guess, towards that business, it sounds like. So you went on to get a civil engineering degree. I Talk did. about that. Yeah, I got a civil engineering degree at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. And actually, I went to college on a full scholarship from the Air Force. And my goal at the time was to be a fighter pilot. Really? Yeah. And I was doing some additional coursework at Cornell University mm-hmm. and a colonel at Cornell. I was about to start the way the ROTC works is in your senior year, you start flight training. You fly Cessnas, you get a private pilot license. And when you graduate, they commission you and they put you right into jets. I was about to start my flight training and a colonel at was Cornell. This Army? This was Air Force. Air Force. Okay. And so a colonel at Cornell called me up and said, you got to come down and see me. And you got to realize this is old-fashioned dial phones, right? No internet, no cell phones. You know, back then, I would, this is in the 70s. And so I went down to see this colonel, and he said, I've got bad news and good news. What do you want? I said, give me the bad news first. And he said, okay, the bad news is you can't fly. I said, why? And he said, Vietnam War let out. We don't need any more pilots. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'll be a navigator. He said, nope, you can't be in the cockpit. Really? He said, I said, well, what's the good news? He said, the good news is you can be anything else you want in the Air Force, or you can get out. You've got a free education from the U.S. government. And I said, well... So I conferred with my dad and I said, look, I, you know, I really wanted to fly airplanes. I really don't have the desire to do anything else other than fly airplanes if I'm going to be in the Air Force. So I took their offer on, on exiting and getting a free education from the government. And so ultimately, I finished my engineering degree and I moved on from there. Interestingly, my son uh, was Navy, Navy ROTC and flew helicopters for 10 years for yeah. the U.S. Navy in the, in the Gulf, went twice to the Gulf. Yeah. Well, as you'll find out through this interview, we do an awful lot of work for the Navy. And if I had to do it all over again, I would be a naval aviator. Really? Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to go out on two aircraft carriers during flight operations. And that gave me exposure to it. And then we do an awful lot. Our company does an awful lot of work on behalf of the Navy, mostly for the nuclear submarine programs. And I have been genuinely really impressed by the Navy and the people in the Navy and the way they go about their training and then the hardware that they have, that just the surface ships, the submarines, and the jets that they um, deploy are really, truly extraordinary. So, so if I had to do it all over again, I'd be a naval aviator. Well, I'll share a story. I spent six days on the US, USS John C. Stennis yep. with my son. Awesome. And that was the Tiger Cruise, which is a, you familiar with that program? I am. So I did it from Pearl Harbor to San Diego. Ah. Six days on the ocean. You'll never forget it. Oh, it gives me goosebumps just to talk about it. (laughs) It was incredible. Yeah, same with my experience on the two (laughs) carriers that I went out on. Yeah, two air shows over the Pacific. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's just there's nothing like it. Yeah, it's incredible to see. I mean, to see the force of that, and there's nothing like it in the world. Yeah. There's no other. There's another force like that. Yeah. Anywhere. So Do you know a, how many aircraft carrier battle groups we have in this country? Well, there are eleven carriers, right? Right. So I don't know how and many each one has about twenty thousand men. Right. Right. There are fifty five hundred on a carrier. So, Correct. Yeah. And then there's the destroyers and tenders right. and submarines and everything that goes with a carrier battle group. Yeah. It's really Perhaps quite the most, impressive. Two most exciting moments I'll mention is leaving Pearl Harbor, the, the port. They had a special historian tell the whole story of December 7th, 1941. Everyone, all the entire crew was on the perimeter of the flight deck. Right. In dress whites, saluting as we passed by the memorial there. Oh, my wow. goodness, David. Wow. I can't tell you. That brought a tear to your eye. Oh, my goodness. It yeah. was just chills. Yeah. You know, it was just amazing. So. Well, the two highlights of my aircraft carrier experiences were an arrested landing and a catapult launch. Oh. They were extraordinary. So you rode in a, you did a catapult launch off a carrier? Oh, and my I goodness. I did it twice. Yeah, I watched it. I couldn't believe it. You can't believe it's it. It's so loud. Zero to one eighty in two seconds. <laughs> the G forces are amazing. Aren't yeah, they? it's extraordinary. Wow. So you went to Syracuse and uh, got out, I guess, and then uh, then what? Well, I started with Morse Diesel in New York City. Is that the company uh, your dad worked for? Or? It was. Ah, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. So he helped me get a job there. And talk about the impact of Morse Diesel. I mean, I've read a little bit about them, but they were one of the big, big GCs in general. Yeah, you know, and Carl Morse was what he was really known for. He founded a process called Fast Track, which is really, you know, more or less. Let's call the the similarity would be just in time, right? Uh, Deliveries, Uh right, for the construction of major office towers. And the big one was at the time the Pan Am Building. It's no longer called that. The Pan Am building in New York City. 200 was, Park Avenue. 200 Park Avenue was their big claim to fame. And then they right. went on and built all kinds of buildings on. That was built on top of the Grand Central Station. Correct. Right. Right. Air so they did some really large projects. And, and then I helped them build a number of those large projects. I was an assistant project manager and I worked in their office and in the days when everything was typewritten by hand. Interestingly, I interviewed Chuck Chuck Waters of Heinz. He started his career in, in Manhattan for Heinz, building right. very large, large buildings yeah. as a developer there. And he said he told stories there that were amazing. They are amazing. They're they're amazing. Uh, you know, projects. They're large, and you know the interesting thing about those projects, if you think about it, everything comes in on the back of a truck. And so your logistics for the whole, you know, how you build those things is really one of the most pivotal things. How do you get cranes of the magnitude that they have into the city? Yeah, you assemble them in place Ah. is what you do. You bring them in parts and then you assemble them in place. And then what they do, they have these jib cranes that they attach to the side of the building and they bring other cranes up through the jib cranes. So it's very interesting way that they go about that. Crane on crane, basically. Crane on crane. Because you see... They might put elevators on the side of the buildings such that the, the crane goes up on the side. Is that right. by an elevator? Kind right. Of, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, very fascinating. Those elevators, by the way, are extremely fast. And sometimes on occasion, you would ride them and they'd let them free fall. The operator oh 
would let them free fall. It was quite a scary experience going down 50 stories in just a few seconds. So my first job was with Prudential Insurance Company. And at that time, in 1979, they owned, they were the fee owner of the, of the Empire State Building, or they were owned it. So there's a film of the construction of the Empire State Building. Right. And it was built in 1933 during the Depression. And it shows laborers on beams, right, a hundred stories up, walking out on beams with no, no, no safety protocols nothing. whatsoever. Now, interesting this fact about the Empire State <laughs> Building is that they built it in thirteen months, yeah, with over three thousand people laborers. That's fast track. <laughs> That's fast track. But it did it at a time when everybody was desperate for wages and work, and so. <clears throat> it was a very advantageous They must system. have had several thousand people on the job then. Over 3,000. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. I assume you've seen that film. I think I have, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty incredible. It is. So then you were there for how long? So Morse Diesel, I was there. They, When I finished a couple of projects in New, in New York City, they transferred me to Memphis, Tennessee. I built the headquarters for the Memphis Publishing Company. Really? Or Morse Diesel there, which is two big printing press Were buildings. You the lead GC? I mean, we yeah, I was the lead project manager down so there. So you for moved that up pretty time. quickly. Mm -hmm. Was your dad there at the time when you were there or not? No, uh, he was not. He had transitioned over to HRH. I see. And so, but I was still there at Morse Diesel. Um, and, and so then my college sweetheart, who is now my wife of 45 years, had gotten a job. She went to Syracuse also, uh, undergrad, and she got a job with Time Life Books in Alexandria. So I was in oh. Memphis, and I really wanted to be with her. And so I transitioned from Memphis, and the Marriott Corporation hired me and brought me to D.C. And so we lived in Old Town, and we got married there, and you know, here we are for 45 years mm -hmm. now. So... I, I read that you developed their headquarters building, which is now being demolished. Correct. So yeah. talk about that process and you know why you came to work for Marriott and all that. Talk about that experience. Well, the primary reason I came to work for Marriott is because I wanted to be located geographically here and they had this need. So I was an assistant project manager for them. Jim Davis's uncle. Ed sure was the project manager and my boss, and that's he's Vicky the one Davis's who hired father, me. Probably Vicky Davis's father. So he's the one who hired me, <laughs> that's and that's how world. I got small world. And that's how I got to know the Davises, and we have a very long history with with Jim Davis and Davis Construction. But we worked together in the trailer right at the site, and it was about a two year engagement to build that building. It was a half a million square feet. It was designed by HOK. Marriott had their own architecture and construction division. At the time, it was run by a guy named Jack Graves, who was really revered in the company because he really helped facilitate their worldwide growth of their hotels, which was pretty astonishing. I had an opportunity to meet several on several occasions with Bill Marriott. He was a complete gentleman. Um, he would come out and visit the site. We'd walk around, talk about what you know, what the various attributes they would have test kitchens and things like that for their various hotels and restaurants that they own. Um, the Merritt family is a really, really, a have really you seen their good new headquarters? family. I have not been through it. I've seen it from the outside, but I've not been through it. Yeah. I did a tour. Yeah. 
So it took two years to build it. And when I got done with it, Jack Graves came to me and he said, son, you've done a really good job here. I want to send you to Saudi Arabia and build a hotel. And I was engaged to be married at the time. And I said, you know, I really don't think that that's what I want to do, you know, being that I'm about to get married. So I ended up, you know, looking for a job and, and Richmar hired me. And so, and they were an owner builder. And I went over to Richmar so that I could stay in this area rather than go to Saudi Arabia. And I ended up building, because of my high-rise experience, Richmar put me on a lot of their high-rise condos that they were developing at the time. And I also helped with some of their single-family product. So they were a family-owned business. They were very prolific in the 70s and 80s. I was a project manager with them. And really, that's where I started to get exposure to the development side of the business because I was doing construction, but they owned what they built. Right. And so that really started giving me exposure and development. Which projects you work on with theirs? Of theirs? So Old Georgetown Village, big master plan community, uh, community was one of them. The Barclay and Chevy Chase, the Barclay, excuse me, in Columbia, Pike was a condominium. And there were several other high rises. I did work, do some work on the Skyline Project and Kings Park was another one, big single-family community in Springfield. Sure. So the skyline, the Charles E. Smith skyline? Right. right. Yeah. So if you were, might recall, there was a collapse there. And so Charles E. Smith was uh, more or less, a, Richmar was a sister company of Charles E. Smith. They were related to each other. I think Kirstein's and the, I think and the Kirstein's Smiths. and the Smith. I think, yeah. I think Dick Kirstein married a relative of Bob Smith or something mm-hmm. like that, as yeah. I recall. And so when Smith had that collapse, he couldn't build the buildings anymore. So Richmar took them over. And because of my high-rise experience, they had me get involved in, in some of those high-rises over at Bailey's Crossroads. Mm-hmm. Was that just a, a structural collapse or was there some other issue with it? Or what? Well, so what happened was this is before, you know, now these counties have critical structures programs. And so that collapse is what precipitated the critical structures program in really? Fairfax County. Prior to that, there was there was no criteria, there was no jurisdictional criteria for the stripping of forms on concrete. And so in their zealousness to you know meet the schedule, they stripped the forms early. And so they still had many floors they were building on top of green concrete, and that's what precipitated the collapse. And I think several people died, if I recall correctly. What was this, in the 70s? Or the, yeah, it yeah. was in the 70s. Before was yeah, there. right. Yeah. So then you were at Richmar for a couple years? A couple years, yep. And then spent one year with Jerry Siegel and Siegel Construction. Oh, sure. He came and recruited me. Siegel um, Zuckerman eventually. Right? Siegel Zuckerman eventually. Yep. And then... Samus made a very strong push at hiring me. I had probably six interviews with those guys. And with Lee Samus flying in from California, who was an Irvine, California-based developer, wanted to set up shop here. And so he hired Joe Spados, Mark Hassinger, and myself. And the three of us ran the D.C. office. And most of the projects we did were joint ventures with New England Life. And we had probably a dozen office parks that we developed here including the one we're sitting in, Campus Commons. Mm-hmm. So did you guys divide roles up there among the three of you? Yeah. As far as who did what? Yeah, we did our own construction. So I ran the construction company. That makes sense. Joe did most of the financing. Mm-hmm. 
and yep. Mark did most of the design. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how we divided up the roles. But, you know, it was very symbiotic, right? right? And I would say of all the things that I did, that was the one that was really where I cut my teeth in development right. and really came to understand the right. development business. So did you get into the land use issues and that kind of thing at that all point? All that. All the land use issues, going to the hearings, yeah. all the entitlements, right. the zoning, getting to know the communities, a lot of coffee table conversations in people's <laughs> living rooms, yes. which is really necessary in, to be successful as a developer. Yeah. So I really cut my teeth in the business, understanding what I call and what I teach now is the dynamics of the real estate equation and how a financial model works and all of the variables in that and how important that is to really be utilized as a guide and in your Bible for a successful development project. You always need to check in on your financial model and make sure you're meeting your numbers. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting how many variables you put into that equation. It could be <laughs> right. hundreds, literally. Right. Yeah. Right. And what you have to watch, you know, throughout the job is how things, you know, right. And then what adjustments you have to make. It's it's interesting. There's and that really makes the business really challenging because many of those variables are out of your control, right. like the weather, all right, or if there's interest rates, or interest rates, right, or you know, you know, labor supplies and labor, labor and cost of labor and all those things are variables. Some many of which are outside of your control. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I've over the years, I've taught a number of real estate development classes, the Urban Mm -hmm. Land Institute. I've taught there, NAOP. I've I've done a number of those. And there's an interesting question that I start. It's the first question I ask of every class. I'm going to ask you this question. I've never had anybody give me the right answer. But I'm going to ask you the question, see if you know. <laughs> okay, you're All turning right? the tables on me. So what is it that makes real estate development so unique? Well, I, I have my own kind of thought, and this is very first principles. Yep. So to me, and that's why I'm interested in real estate in the first place, it's a three-legged stool. There's communications, there's mathematics, analytics, and there's design, function. So to me, those are the three basic elements of commercial real estate. Right. And, you know, you have to understand all of them. And But in my mind, number one is communications among all of them. I agree with that completely. And, but, however, that's not what makes real estate development so unique. I mean, you're right. Your three legs of the stool are absolutely spot on. And communications is the hallmark of a successful project. But what makes real estate development so unique is that without exception, every single aspect of it is negotiable. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it such a challenging and invigorating. Whether to do it at all. Right, <laughs> right. And so, so as you're interviewing people like myself and you're interviewing icons in real estate and some of which are developers, what really makes good developers is that they become really good negotiators. And that becomes the skill that you have to refine in order to be a really successful. The hardest person to negotiate with, though, is yourself. (laughs) Is yourself. (laughs) Right. And having discipline. And having discipline. Exactly. And that's another thing that I teach is that you can't (laughs) fall in love with your real estate. No. You cannot do that. Too many people do. And you you have to know when to 
you know, fish are cut bait. You really have to do that. Well, it's funny how you say that because I just interviewed Gary Rappaport. Yeah. So Gary Rappaport doesn't like to sell property. Right. Just, that's his whole mantra, never yeah. to sell. And he also says, why develop when you can buy five shopping centers in the time that it takes to build one? Right. So it's an interesting philosophy that he has. Right. And um, it's served him pretty well. Yeah. But it's, you know, everyone has a different kind of thought process in looking at that. Well, it really comes down to the liquidity, right? The, the, one of the things that is challenging about real estate is it, it is an illiquid investment. It's only when it's finished and stabilized and producing cash flow that you get some liquidity back. That's the risk of development. That's the risk of development. And we go through, you know, unfortunately, it's a cyclical business. And the scale of the projects that we do is, tends to be quite large. And so the cycle for us to get a project from start to stabilization can be upwards of five or six years. Those are long time frames, and the macroeconomics in the world change dramatically in those five or six years. Well, this, this, this thought that you just brought up brings me back to your transition from Lee Samus into right. your own company. Right. Because, and I'm going to paint a scenario and you can either tell me no or not, but it, my sense is that, you know, you, you took on fee development, which was kind of your main thrust because of the capital markets risks of doing that, because you had a client that says, okay, certainty here. We, at least I've cut away the capital part of it. So now all I have to do is build this project for this client and get it developed in time, help, you know, that group with the entitlements with the, with the County and do all those things. But I don't have to worry about the capital markets because they're going to cover the cost. They've set the budget for me. That's what I have to build under. Am I wrong with that assessment? No. It, well, so it, it's a little different than that, but you're, you're, you're more right than wrong. Okay. So what happened was, so how I got, how I got into my own business. Sure. Okay. I'll, let's start with that. Let's and I'm going that. to tell you yeah. how I morphed into fee development and, and what the macroeconomics were that yep. required that. Okay. So I got into the business. I was a partner at Lee Samus. And I started, we, we had made a really good name for ourselves. We had a dozen office parks. And I had people like Bob Smith call me up and say, hey, I want to meet with you. Okay. And he started to make some inroads into, you know, would you come work here? You know, trying to, trying to get me. And I was like, uh, you know, look, I'm a general partner in what I do right now. You know, I'm pretty happy with where I am and, and I was okay. However, one offer came to me and it was from Pete Scamarda. And he came to me and said, listen, I want to start a whole new division to my business. I've had my eye on you. Things are going really well. I'll put up some seed capital, and you and I can start a company. We'll own it 50-50. And I took the plunge and said, okay, let's do it. And we started this business. What in, year was that? That was 88. Okay. And that was 88. I left Samus. I started the business. And it was started as a development company. And I went out. And as a developer, I formed a joint venture with Till Hazel really? on a property we put under contract at Sullyfield Circle. I formed a joint venture with David Evans. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And I had a joint venture with, with Pete Scamardo. And um, was it just you and Pete, or did you have some of his team on his your team? It was not? just me and him. Okay. All right. It was a whole separate division. We would meet once a week and 
irrespective of anything you might have heard about Pete Scamardo, I will tell you he was a tremendous mentor. He was really he had very good business acumen. He would sit me down once a week. We'd spend about two hours, and it was a, a lot of focus on the numbers, a lot of focus on, you know, he had, he had a famous saying that I, I remember. He said to me, um, he, he said, you got, he said, your most important thing is to earn a living. He said, meaning you got to be able to pay for yourself, right? He said, making money is easy. Earning a living is a really hard thing to do. He said, so let's focus on earning a living, and then we'll find a way to make money. Let me pivot for a moment. One of my prior guests was Charlie Nelson. Yeah. Charlie worked for Pete, and he yeah. talks about Pete specifically in that interview quite right. a bit. Yep. Yeah, Charlie's a good guy. He was there He's to the end well. with Pete, basically. He was. And I watched, so I was there watching Pete's empire kind of fall apart. So you're going to remember, we formed our business in, this is 87, 88. And then 89 was the SNL crisis. Right. Okay. And Pete Scamardo was really in the crosshairs of a number of lenders. Oh, yeah. I mean, big time. Including our company. And yeah, big time, right? And time. yeah, and so there were all kinds of things swirling around. I'm, I was over there meeting with him, and I, you know, you just hear this noise in the hallway. Yep. And Pete was hiring bankruptcy attorneys, and you know, he was under siege. Okay, <clears throat> I really didn't have anything to do with that, but I just could hear it in the hallways. Mm -hmm. And eventually, it got to a point where I said to him, "I said, Pete, listen, you got a lot going on here." Right, you got a lot of issues that you've got to deal with. It'd probably be best for you if I bought you out. And he said, I agree with that. I said, All right. And he had of the half a million dollars or so that he had said that he would invest, he probably had a hundred thousand dollars laid out. I said, I'll pay you back the hundred thousand, sign over the other half of the company to me, and I'll just I'll exit and we can both go our ways. And we did that amicably and, and, and moved on. And that was the genesis of me having my own company. So for the listeners, I just wanted to share that Pete Scamardo's company was called Centennial Development Company at the time. Right. In 19, he started, I think, in the early 1980s. And, uh, at 300 people. And Northern Virginia at that time, just to give some market perspective, was just perhaps one of the two, other than Southern California, the fastest growing office, suburban office market in the United States. Correct. The CB office here was number one in the nation. Correct. Number one in the nation. Right. Guys so, like John McKevley, Steve oh, Spencer. Just These incredible. Icons of, <coughs> of I mean, they were making millions then. Millions. Millions in, in commissions. And yeah. we were doing these huge build-a-suits. And it, it was really unique time. I mean, I'll give you an example. We were out at Dallas Technology Center, and we were trying to do business with a company called CIT Alcatel. Very, right. you know, sure. large network company that was growing. And I remember standing on the property and the CEO of CIT Alcatel said, I'll do this 200,000 square foot building with you guys, but I got to be in in a year. And we said a year. Okay. <laughs> and we had a preliminary design, right? That's about all that we had. And so I went to meet the guy running the county Permit division was a Claude Cooper, a real gentleman. We had good standing with them. I went and met with Claude Cooper, and the county was really keen on growing their commercial tax base. 
And so they were really rolling out the red carpet to these big corporations who wanted to locate here mm -hmm. during, you know, these very heady times. And so we met with, with Mr. Cooper and he said, so what do you need? And I said, well, we've got this bill to suit. They've got to be in in a year. So, so what do you need for me? I said, we need to be able to start now in order to make this. He says, do you have a site plan? I said, oh, we have a site plan. He goes, okay, I'm going to have my staff review it quickly and we'll get right back to you. And within a week, we had, we had an approval. Within a week, we had an approval and That's we launched. Amazing. Yeah. It, you, I mean, you, there's no way you could do that today. But those were, you know, those were different times. Fast track. Fast track. Big time. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting times. No question. So then how did your company start? Well, so what was the impetus there? Well, so, you know, so then what happened was, I, as you know, I bought out Pete. Right. Right. And so there we are in 1989, the SNL crisis happened. Right. 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 And so I had one project under construction. The other two were still under contract. And I had negotiated the contracts to the point where I could get out of those deals and get our deposits returned and move on. Right. Because the, all the banks had melted down. The development right. community was melting down. But I had one that was under construction. It was a medical condominium called Sudley Park. It's directly across the street from Prince William Hospital. Hmm. And so there I was, and I had personally guaranteed the $5 million construction loan. This is in Manassas? This is in Manassas. Yeah. So this thing's half done, right? And so I've got to sell units. The bank itself ultimately went under that I had lent to. But I'm the kind of person where I... I don't default on loans. I always pay back my debts. It's part of the integrity that you'll hear about, you know, that is really kind of what we, we tout as our number one attribute is, is our integrity. Which bank was it? Do you remember? I don't remember the was name. It United of it. Savings Bank? No, it wasn't United Perpetual? I don't remember who it was. Okay. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. It's the savings bank. It was a small bank that made this $5 million loan to me. And so... You know, I and so the whole market was melting down. And so what I did, right? I was a condo. Remember, I had to sell units. Right? I had eighty some on units of commercial, yeah. you know, medical office spaces. What it was meant to be for doctors. Your break-even point was labs. probably what about sixty units, fifty, something like that. Yeah. yeah, right. So long story short, I would hold seminars at the Holiday Inn in Manassas. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the title of the seminar was How to Buy Commercial Real Estate with No Money Down. And I'd serve some chicken fingers and I'd sell a unit. And that's what I did. And I hustled and I worked it and I worked it and I worked it. And long story short, I paid the loan back in full. Now, I lost a half a million dollars. Okay. I mean, but I paid the Personally. debt. Personally. Personally. But I paid the debt. So there I was. Now, you know, I've gotten through that. You're in 1990, 1991, and I'm kind of the last man standing. Scamardo went under. Everybody was gone. Oh, yeah. Okay? It was a complete collapse of the industry. Yep. Okay? I'm the last man standing. So that's when I realized that there was a need. There's still a need for a real estate project. There's all these institutions that need real estate. So I started doing development and project management and started to develop a system that ensures predictability of outcome. It ensures on time and on budget every time. And that was something 
that really became a pivot point for us and really launched our Project Magic business to where now it's a national company that's built in 35 states. So who are your first clients? So one of the largest first clients, I went to a speech that a guy named Knox Singleton gave. He used to run Innova Health System. Oh, I know that name. Right? Yeah, sure. So Knox gave a system, gave, gave a, excuse me, gave a speech at, it was either a NIOP or Associated Builder to Contractors Conference. I forget. I think it was NIOP. So he gave a speech. And after the speech, I went and chatted him up, introduced myself, said hi to him. Started talking about some of the medical things that I had done in Manassas and some of the physician practices we had built and dialysis labs and things like that. And he says, you know quite a bit about this stuff. He said, can you come see me tomorrow? I said, sure. He said, okay, give me a call and we'll, we'll get it on the calendar. I went and saw him and he says, look, I got, I'm affiliated with, you know, our Cubs affiliated with 14 hospitals. We've got this big platform. I have a facilities department. And he says, it's just completely broken. Okay, he says it's just it's just a mess, and I said, "Well, that's completely understandable." And he looked at me, you know, questioning why I would say that. And I said, "Well, you're not you're in the business of delivering healthcare. Mm-hmm. You're not in the business of delivering real estate. You shouldn't be in the real estate business, quite frankly." And he said, "Can you do me a favor?" He said, "Take a look at my facilities department and come back to me with some recommendations." I said, "Okay, I'll take a look at it." Looked at it, came back to him with some recommendations, and he said to me, he "Goes, can you take it over?" I said, what do you mean? He said, can you take over the facilities of Innova Health System? As an employee. As an employee. And I said, no. I said, I have my own business. He said, then do it as a consultant. I said, I have my own business. It's a hard thing to do. He said, well, then do this for me. Take it over for a year and hire your replacement. Hire somebody that you, you know who's good, who can run the thing. And I did that. And I did, and I did a number of facilities for Innova and while I still had my own business and ultimately hired a gentleman who took over and stayed with them for many years and really turned their facilities around. And that became the launching pad for doing a lot of institutional work, you know, and leading ultimately to the relationship that we have now that these 20 year relationship, customer based relationships with the likes of Gulfstream and General Dynamics and Electric Boat and, you know, these larger project management clients that our system has has worked so well for. So what you did is you brought your construction expertise and experience to clients that didn't have it or shouldn't have had it, is what you said. Right. And they had to build, but there was nobody out there to do it because construction companies were all probably really in deep trouble at that time as right. well. Yeah, and the, the, you know one of the one of the biggest challenges if not the biggest challenge to the development industry is cost overruns. Right. Okay. And people do not like to go back to their bosses or to their boards or, you know, the decision makers and ask for more money. And unfortunately the way that, you know, these process, we talked about the number of variables and how complex these projects are. And, you know, there's a lack of discipline in a number of the various constituent parts that comprise these projects. The construction industry, by way of example, right, it can, can, it's not always, but can be predatory. And so, you know, if you're not prepared up front to address that, 
you're going to have some challenges. You're going to have some struggles with your schedule and your budget. And so what we did and what I did, use my construction acumen to realize, understand, to really understand the pain points of development Mm -hmm. and how can I make this easy for people? How can we make this process where they have predictability of outcome, where they don't have to go back to a board for money, where they have reassurance that they're going to finish on time and on budget. And that's the system that we've developed that's resonated so well with these large corporations. So you mentioned pain points. Maybe I did a, a course for my community uh, on the development process. And I used mm-hmm. I brought an a experienced developer in to, to lead it. I brought the capital markets view, and then I had an attorney that did all the con, you know, all the documental aspects of, of mm-hmm. the development project. Right. We didn't get into the specific pain points, more of the process, you know, these are the things you could, you know, step by step by step kind of thing. But we didn't talk about distill down to pain points. I know it could be a whole course to tell this, but I'm just curious if they're at a high level, what pain points do you see that other people may not be aware of unless they were taught what they were? Well, so let's just, I think one of the biggest ones is agreements and how to utilize smart agreements and how to make sure you have the proper language in your agreement and that you enforce your agreement. You talking about the general contract, subcontracts, all the above here or what? Architects, engineers, contracts, all of those things. Right. Really one of the strengths that we have as a company is that we've developed a proprietary set of documents that address the issues that an owner's gonna face and allow us to have surety of outcome. So I'll give you an example, okay? In our construction agreements, we have a phrase that says, irrespective of the errors and omissions in the plans and specifications, you, the contractor, are going to give us a complete and functioning project. Now the contractors say, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't design this. And we say, true, but you've built 300 buildings like this. You know what it's going to take. Is that different than a construction guarantee? Well, yes. You know, a construction guarantee is typically what a lender, and it's typically what we call a completion guarantee, what the lenders require of us to lend us money. Right. And I have no... We generally are risk averse and we try not to enter into recourse provisions on our loan where we have personal guarantees. But there is one personal guarantee I willingly sign because I think I need to sign it because it's our business. It's what we're responsible for. And it's called a completion guarantee right. where we're telling the lender that we're going to make sure this is done on time and we're going to make sure it's done on budget. It's our business. We should stand tall to that. How does that differ from the language you were talking about earlier? So the language I'm talking about earlier is the language that's actually in the construction agreement with the contractor. And so you can enforce with the contractor language like that so that you don't get nickel and dime with change orders. Now, the contractor is going to come back and say, listen, you know, these drawings, these projects have drawings, you know, it's a thousand sheets of plans. And of course, they're, they're created by humans. There's going to be a lot of mistakes in them. Right. Of course, there's no such thing as a perfect set of plans. Right. And so we know that. So what we do, is we tell the contractor, listen, we understand there's a certain amount of risk that you're taking by agreeing to that phrase. 
So we're going to give you a contingency, mm-hmm. all right, that we'll agree to that it for you to take that risk, okay? And so under that premise, the contractors accept that language. So that in and of itself saves an enormous amount of time and headache fighting change orders when we can point to that and say, wait a minute. Okay, and so some examples in, in the way I adjudicate that or way that we adjudicate that with contractors is we say, look, we if there's a light fixture shown on the ceiling and there's no light switch in the wall, we expect you to have the light switch. And they say, of course I do. All right. On the other hand, the term that I use is I can't expect you to be clairvoyant. So by way of example, if the structural engineer has designed, you know, a staircase and he put the wrong size rebar in it, I can't expect you, the contractor, to know that. All right. And so on a situation like that, I'll talk to the architect and I'll talk to the engineer and we'll look to their insurance, right, to cover something like that. Mm-hmm. And I won't, I won't ask you, Mr. Contractor, to cover it. So when we give examples like that and we explain the rationale behind this, right. Every single contractor says, that's fair, we'll accept that. And, and so it's, there are many, many more phrases like that, that we, and strategies that we employ in our agreements that help us ensure and deliver consistently on time and on budget. It strikes me that a lot of developers would learn by understanding that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because we're in the process of finalizing a webinar where we're going to teach these principles there you go. and we're going to put that online and we're going to, we're going to ask people to pay us some modest consideration or return for seeing it. But we want to, we think we can access the worldwide market and, and, and teach people some of these, mm-hmm. you know, proven principles that have worked again and again and again. So you've already talked about several of your clients, while many other companies focus on building their own portfolios, it seems that you were focused on serving others' development needs. Was it because you were concerned about the capital market risks at the time, or did you have so much business that you, you believed you didn't need that risk? Well, so it was a combination of, bo- of both. So the development business requires a lot of capital. Okay? Yes, it and does. You, and you got to remember, I started as a project manager. I didn't have any money. And I was right? a financier, so I right. know exactly what people... Right. Right. And so, and, you know, and on any particular development project, the most of the bank is going to give you is about 60%. You've got to come up with the other 40%. And when you're doing a $100 million project, that's a lot of money. Okay. And so typically in our relationships with our capital partners, they'll give us 90% of that 40%, but we have to come up with the other 10. And so it, it took a long time to get to a point where we had enough capital to invest right, alongside a limited partner and do some of these projects. And we're fortunate now, and, and we run the company without any debt. And I can't say that that was true for the whole history of the company. Early on, you take on debt, right? And as these market cycles would, would arise, you know, you know, the debt becomes a problem. So when right? did you pivot from fee development or doing purely projects for others and do your own private projects. Well, as you recall, we started the company. It was founded when I founded it with, with Pete Camaro right, yeah. as a development company. Right, but we pivoted right. to project management with the meltdown in yeah. 
89 and 90. And where our development, where our development process really launched is when I brought in my two sons. Ah, okay. okay. And that's when, so my son, Ryan, he's a Dartmouth grad. Okay. Really smart financially. He's a spreadsheet guru, really good with design. He looked at this whole process. He said, dad, listen, we're making a lot of money for other people. We need to start bringing some of that home. And so we pivoted into more and more under he and Tyler's leadership, all right? So what year was that? So Ryan's been with me for 11 years. Okay. And Tyler's been with me for five or six years now. So for about 20 years, you really were a fee development shop mostly. Mostly. We did yeah. We did a couple of developments that were successful. Loudon Parkway Commons mm-hmm. was a uh, <clears throat> 150,000 square foot warehouse condominium project we did on Loudoun County Parkway. Right. We pre-sold every unit before we broke ground. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing story. And that partnership made about $6 million, right? And I had some brokers who were investors and I had my own capital in it and, you know, high net worth investors and everybody, you know, that was, you know, the way we measure development success. One of the measurements is return on cost and another one is multiple of money. Right. Right. So on that particular project, the, the multiple money was a three. It was a three X for everybody. That's pretty good. It was an amazing, there was a guy named Bill Saltes, who was our broker, who was selling the units for us. And he would call me up and he'd say, hey, I sold units A, B, C, and D today. I said, okay, let's raise the price on the next, you know, the next four. He goes, I sold them too. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. And so we couldn't raise the prices fast enough, literally. It was, they were flying off the shelf. It was an incredible. You won't see that anytime soon. You won't see that again, you know, so. But we have another similar success story on our central project, which is a large multifamily project we did in, in South Arlington. And, and really, again, I owe that to my two sons. So Tyler's specialty is construction, and he was out in the field working with Jennings, who was the contractor, excellent contractor, by the way. L.F. Jennings. L.F. Yeah. Jennings. But now, you know, and I knew Larry before he passed away. He and I were on the board at ABC together, and we did a lot of stuff, you know, in, in our early years. And, you know, so to this day, they're a great company. So we built this project, 366 units. Ryan was really in charge of the finance and design. Tyler was running the construction we got the project completed in November of 19. We were methodically leasing it. We had gotten to the point where we were about 40% leased up. Mm-hmm. And what happened in March of 2020? COVID. Pandemic. Boom. All of a sudden, we went from leasing 30 units a month to zero. To zero. Okay. So you're sitting here watching this, you know, we had, I had negotiated a lease with Harris Teeter to put a grocery store in there. All of our retail had been fully leased up. It was all about just leasing it up. We had this great success story, you know, unfolding before us and then COVID hit and the leasing, the music stopped. Mm-hmm. And so to my son's credit, my son, Ryan did a deep dive and said, wait a minute. Okay. We're getting zero leases. But some of our competitors are getting two or three leases. So what's going on? Why are they? So there's still a market out there. Okay. Were they were the units delivered so they could physically walk? The tenants yeah. could walk? Yeah, we were done. We were done and moving people oh, okay. in. All right. But yeah, yeah. We were 40% leased at the time. Okay. And you know, on a 366 unit project, 
you typically are going to plan for about 18 to 24 months to lease it up. It, it, it's pretty typical that you'll do somewhere between 20 and 30 I mean, you can lease for models, too. You don't have Of to course, have and we did. Yeah. We had we probably had 35 or 40 pre-leased units yeah, right. when we opened the doors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we were all successful with that, and, and it was the COVID that really took everything, you know, stopped everything in his tracks. To Ryan's credit, what he did is did a lot of research, and he discovered, okay, so what, what was happening in, is that in the way – the way apartments get leased is people use a filter. They go online. They're all leased online. And they, they go, they put a filter in, typically what's the most that they want to spend per month, where it's a geographic location, and then options pop up. Did you have your own leasing team? We used Van Meter. Okay. Van Meter did the property management leasing, mm-hmm. and they did a spectacular job for us. But working with Van Meter, we we're trying to figure out what we could do strategically to reinvigorate our leasing, which had come, which had really just stopped in its tracks, right? And <clears throat> so what Ryan figured out is in the state of Virginia, you're allowed to advertise net effective rents, okay? And so leasing, apartment leasing is all about, it's a numbers game about traffic, mm-hmm. all right? We have what's called a capture ratio. It typically is around 10%. What that means is the number of people who tour right. to do to you'll, about ten percent of them will sign a lease. Will sign a lease, right? Right. So, you know, you need hundreds of people to tour, right? If you want to get to a point where you're signing twenty to thirty leases every single month, right? So Ryan discovered that we could we could advertise legally net effective rent. So what that means we're giving concessions at the One time or two months two months at the time two months, all right? So you can advertise in Virginia. You can't do this in the District of Columbia, but you can in Virginia. You can say, you can take the two months and factor it into the annual rent, and you can say $14.99 a month. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happening is you're going to tell them that the first two months are free. You're not going to pay any rent for the first two months. Right. But then after that, you're going to pay $1,700 a month. Right. Exactly, right? And it's all about how potential buyers for the property or potential capital sources for your refinancing when you put your mortgage on are going to underwrite it. They're going to underwrite that higher level of income. Okay? So we would advertise units at $14.99 a month. All right? We leased 60 units in May, 62 units in June, 65 units in July, 60 units in August, and in September, we were fully stabilized in less than a year. So what was the differential before and after with regard to the advertising? It's about $200 a month. And that tripped it. it, That tripped it, and it was so attractive. And people would show up at our property and say, wait a minute, I can live here for $500 to $1,000 a month cheaper in South Arlington, then 10 minutes away in the Rosin Boston. So this it was, was a value ex- proposition. It was an experiment. It's an experiment. And, you know, you weren't sure whether it would work or not right. at the time, which is interesting. Right. So were not other developers not doing the same thing? They did. They weren't aware of it. Really? Yeah. They eventually they eventually caught on. Our competition so eventually caught on. Son they the couldn't believe came. it. I mean, our direct competitors were getting three, four leases a month, and here we are getting 60 units a month. And they're like, what are these people doing? And it took that by the time they figured out what we were doing, we were full. You were leased. We were full. 
Now we got to 99% on that Congratulations. That's yeah, exciting. It's a real success story. You must have been really pleased. <laughs> pleased and proud. Yeah. That's awesome. We still are. It's a great, great asset. So getting into the residential, most of your earlier work was in office and institutional facilities. When, when did you pivot into residential projects? And you're also doing land development now, I understand. So we, st- we started with a project on Capitol Hill that we, we invested in and actually served as a construction manager. When was that? That was about 10 years ago, okay. 10, 12 years ago. It did well. We made good money. The owners made good money. We were a co-owner. Why did you do it? At the time. Uh, again, we wanted to really break into, they presented the opportunity to us. They said, look, we'd love to have your construction manage it. It would be really helpful to us if you would make an investment and leave part of your fee in the deal. And so we agreed to it. And, and it worked out quite well for us and for them. And so that really got us going on you know, the multifamily side of the business. That was a 70-unit deal on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went on and started doing more and eventually put the central property under contract. And we have about 1,000 units in the pipeline right now that will break ground next, next year in Arlington. So how is steel and concrete construction different than stick-built construction? Yeah, so stick built's a lot more cost effective. And that's the reason why, you know, we we purchased the Red Lion Hotel a year ago in Arlington. It's a three acre site. We're gonna demolish the hotel and put an office, I mean, excuse me, an apartment building there. And we are allowed by zoning, we could build a 15-story building there out of concrete. However, that would mean that the building would be about 600, 550 to 600 units. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's really too many units to dump onto a submarket. You can't do it in phases? You can't do it in phases because it's high rise. It would be very difficult to do in phases. And so, and it's concrete. So it's really expensive. Concrete is a very punishingly expensive commodity right now. So we intentionally built a smaller building. We're building a smaller building, a shorter building that's stick built because it's more cost effective and it'll provide a greater return to our investor. We still get 440 units out of it, mm-hmm. which is more than enough, but we are intentionally foregoing density for the sake of building a stick build, which has an 84-foot height limit. Mm-hmm. So do you think that your return on cost will be better to do it that way than it would be if you did with the other, or is it just a risk issue that you're no, worried about? No, the return on cost is better. It's definite. So I, you know, the parallel to that is at the same time, we have a concrete building Right. that we've designed in Arlington it's called Joyce Motors. And that one, the return on cost is not quite as high because it's concrete right. versus stick, which is less expensive. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. we see that there's going to be a pretty significant adjustment in hard costs because the underwriting has really dried up on new development. And so it just hasn't hit the subcontractors yet. One of the largest, the, one of the largest multifamily contractors in the country told me a week ago his business is off 40% this year from last year. So it's coming. There is absolutely a correction in hard costs. The reason why we haven't seen it yet is because of labor. Labor is still the big challenge. But what's going to happen is there's going to become a tipping point where the subcontractors run out of work and then they're going to start dropping their prices. I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but I know it's got to happen because all the developers are really struggling with their underwriting on new projects right now. Talk a little bit about 
cutting edge technology that you might be involved in. And, uh, one area that I want to ask you about, if you have any familiarity or done with, is what's known as mass timber, yeah. which is a new construction area. I toured a building on M Street in southeast Washington. It's an office building that actually I think Davis constructed. Davis built it. Yeah. yeah. It was an addition to a building. Right. On mass. top. Yes. And one of my members of my community is planning a project in Glover Park, which will be a 100% mass timber apartment building, right. residential, right, with for Grosvenor. Right. And I'm just curious if you explored that, if you looked at it, what are the pluses and minuses of doing it, all that kind of thing. What do you think? So we have, and it's very near and dear to my son Tyler's part, who's very much into that type of construction. And so we had an interview yesterday with a mass timber company called Beamery, who's located in Indiana. And we're building ski homes on top of a mountain in Utah. Really? Yep. Okay. And we built, we have 10 lots there. We built three, sold them. There's a desire to build the next seven, but having come through the first three, we did well on them, we made money on them, but it's really, really challenging to build anything on top of a mountain. Just think about getting a load of concrete up 10,000 feet, right, on the back of a truck. Really hard. And so we are looking at alternatives, and one of them is mass timber. What I under, you know, having gone through this discovery on it, what is attractive about it is that there's a certain amount of prefabrication that goes with mass timber. Mm-hmm. And that they actually build it in their factory and then ship it out on the back of a truck and assemble it. So your construction time gets cut significantly. And in a mountain top environment, you have six months to build. The other six months you cannot, you, you, you can barely strong. traverse the roads, let alone try to build anything. So given that, you know, anything that leads to prefabrication and a more efficient construction time. It's very attractive to us. And mass timber fits that bill. So the one thing we haven't figured out yet is the cost associated with it. That's the next step in our discovery of mass timber. But we're very attracted to it. Interesting. Yeah. Talk about other technology aspects of of the building side that you that you share with your clients and then you know you benefit from yourselves. Well, I think there's I think technology is playing a big role now. And and there's two aspects of that that particularly in our apartment communities that I'll point to. Number one is smart buildings. We've been using on our apartment buildings an app called Rise Buildings. They're based in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it uses your phone. It allows your tenants to use a phone to sign the lease, Mm -hmm. pay the rent, open the door, open the garage door for their cars, allow guests, order food through Grubhub or whatever, and we actually can get a revenue share on some of that. So we're seeing we're seeing the advent of smart buildings really through you know the PDAs that people carry. There's more and more apps that are coming up on that. And another one that we are we've done a deep dive on. It looks like we're going to utilize in the apartment buildings that we're about to start construction on in Arlington. Is one of the biggest costs we have is structured parking. Right now, it's about $80,000 for a below-grade parking space, which is up from 50000 three years ago. And again, it's the cost of concrete, right, and, and the digging. So 
There are a number of companies, one is called Envoy, another one is called Skip, that have apps on phones. And what you do is you lease from them a Tesla vehicle. And the data, there's not a lot of data out there, but the data that we've been able to gather in the communities that they put these in, you can save somewhere between six and 10 parking spaces for every Tesla vehicle that you put in your community. So if we put in three Tesla vehicles, we might be able to save, say, 18 or 20 parking spaces. And you, what you do is you, you give your residents access. They pay $25 an hour or whatever the, the rate is to lease the car. They don't have to have a car, but there's a car always available to them. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's a new technology-driven initiative that we as a company are, are, are you know, really looking hard at. That's cool. So you started developing for your own account several years ago. Did you develop uh, capital markets relationships then at that point? And how did you raise capital for yeah. your deals? Yeah. So the way that we raise capital, it's it, as I said previously, our projects tend to be larger. The capital needs are pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Our largest project to date is three hundred million. So you know you had a, over a hundred million dollars of equity. And so that, project? that was River Point, where we bought the old United States Coast Guard's headquarters, 700,000 square foot office building, and we converted it to a 488-unit apartment building. And it's completed, and it's 87%. Were you a partner with anyone on that yeah. one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Who were your partners? So we had partners. We had capital partners. So Square Mile Capital sure. was our financial partner. And then the Ackridge Company and, and Western Development were partners in that transaction. Redbrick was in that one also initially, but we bought them out. Um, and the project's completed now and, and is in lease up. Herb Miller talks about it in his interview with me. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he did all the retail leasing. I mean, Herb yep. is, I think he's 80 years old at this point. He is. And he's he, something. you know, is really a retail guru. I mean, that's why he was you know, the retail partner in the project. His and story is quite something. Quite something. And he you know, really brought a lot of really good retailers to the asset. You know, he's, he's got these very, very deep retail connections. And so, you know, that's what they, that the benefit that they brought to the property was the retail leases. Mm-hmm. So what well, capital markets, capital yeah, markets. Yeah, I'm sorry. So capital markets. So like I said, a lot of capital required for these projects. You have to have very deep capital. But so the way that we go about funding our projects, we put some of our own capital in, mm-hmm. in each project. And then we typically will go out and to high net worth individuals and raise some capital. All right. And then, and that usually represents between their money and our money that we end up coming up with about 10% of the, equity that's needed for a project. Mm-hmm. So on the projects we're currently doing, that might be five or six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you, we probably need another 30 million on top of it. Okay. Plus or minus. And we go to limited partners. Sure. So on the Red Lion Hotel, we formed um, a limited partnership with a company called ELV Associates. Um, they're based in Boston. And it's a, it's basically a family office of high right. net worth, you know, European families who invest together. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they actually sought us out and said, you know, we're looking for a new partner for our DC relationship. And, you know, we've identified you as a company we'd like to do business with. And that's great. We went through a mating ritual. We ended up 
transacting with them. And now we're looking at multiple. They want to have a programmatic relationship with us. And we're looking. For so others. it's a traditional joint venture, limited partnership, joint yeah. venture structure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then you just go out and bid the, bid the construction financing and we and do that. Okay. Yeah. We typically use brokers for that who, you know, go out and compete those right. needs for us. And bring you, in, you don't have a bank that you just continually go to over and over again. Then, we've say. generally, you know, we've done de- our, the, the company that the bank that we use as a company is United Bank. Sure. They're a very well-run bank. They're a $30 billion bank. And, you know, they've, they've been very prudent in how they run their, they're our corporate banker. They serve our needs well. I'm, I do believe on our local projects, they probably will serve as a construction lender to us. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, some townhouses that we're going to do in Aberdeen, Maryland. We've got these apartment buildings in Arlington. I think that they could play a pivotal role in that. Uh, and if not, you know, we've never had a problem attracting capital. Our projects are well conceived and the numbers are strong. Um, so, you know, we, we are always able to get financing. That's California great. will require, we open an office in LA. My son Ryan runs it and that will require new relationships out there. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're starting down that path with a number of financiers mm-hmm. right now. So before we started the conversation, we mentioned one company that you have a very strong relationship with and you've had for a long period of time. And you actually now have an office down there yeah. in Savannah, Georgia. Right. And that's Gulfstream. Talk right. about how that relationship developed and how you started that. Well, it really started, you know, Gulfstream's owned by General Dynamics. And okay. it really started when we built General Dynamics headquarters. And that's an interesting story. I mean, so I had formed a relationship. What happened was there was a guy, one of the founders of the internet, a guy named Rick Adams, who had sold his company to uh, WorldCom. He made a lot of money. He bought Fairview Park, bought the remaining land at Fairview Park. He called me up out of the blue one day and said, hey, I've heard good things about you. I'd like to talk to you about developing Fairview Park. I went and met with him. And we started doing some master planning. And the general dynamics headquarters you know, they were out with a broker running around looking for a place to be. And so I had an opportunity to meet with the board of directors of General Dynamics. They were looking strategically at properties and they had identified Fairview Park as a place where they thought that could work pretty nicely for them. And so I met with the board and the board chairman, his name was Nick Jabrai at the time. And we had gone through a couple of interviews and eventually he had the whole board come in and he had me come and talk with them. And so I got to meet them and socialize with them. And then Nick asked me, he said, you know, David, I can, we can pick anybody we want. Why should we pick you? Right. And I said, well, the truth is you'll get me. And I said, you'll get my undivided time and attention and you'll get surety of outcome. That's the best answer I can give you. So, okay, thanks. We appreciate your time. We'll let you know. So a week later he called up and he said, get it done. And so they hired us to do their headquarters. We went and built that. It was the original one in Falls Church. We got it done on time and on budget. And at the end of the project, he called me up and he said, hey, David, listen, this went pretty well. Can you help us with some of our business units? And I said, sure. He said, okay. He said, I've recently got the board to approve a capital expansion plan for Gulfstream. And I didn't even know that they owned them. He says, I said, okay, great. He said, you own that? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'd like you to come down to Savannah with me. 
we'll go meet with the powers that be down there, and we'll talk about the campus expansion plan. So we flew down there together. We went. I went into the into a meeting of the leadership at Gulfstream, and um, he introduced me to them. And he said, "They David recently, his company recently completed our headquarters. It went pretty well. I've gotten the board to approve a five hundred million dollar campus expansion for you guys. I want to take you guys from." 60 jets a year to 130 jets a year, all right? And, and I think David can help us get there. So that was the start of the relationship. We have been down there for 20 years. We've probably built 5 million square feet for them. Wow. That's a big... Every time they... So we have seven full-time people in an office in Savannah. And every time they, they roll out a new platform... So we started with the G450, and then the G550, the G650, the G750, and now it's the G850. So every time they come out with a new platform, they have to create a new plant and new machining associated with that. We, so we build all those facilities. We build all those buildings that manufacture those jets. We've built R&D centers for them. We've built testing facilities for them. We built service centers for their jets all over the country. It must be extremely profitable business. Their business yes, is enormously profitable. Has to be. Yeah, they have ten thousand employees, and if you do the math, they sell these jets for sixty, seventy million a piece, and they're selling. You know, How much do they cost to build them? You know, I don't know. That's I don't know that. I'm sure, that's confidential. That's really confidential. Yeah, they would never. I bet it's at me. least twice. I wouldn't know. At half as much. I yeah. would. All I can tell you is that I know that. It takes about a year yeah. to get a jet through the line. Right. They buy all their engines from Rolls Royce. I think that's the really? only thing they don't make. Yeah. They I buy all their that. engines. They don't from, manufacture their own engines. They don't make their own engines. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. They do now. They used to sub out wings, but now they we built a plant that makes the wings, so they build their own wings now. Mm-hmm. They do all of the, you know, all of the the bodies and the tail and the empennage. The, I lived in Wichita, else. Kansas, for a year and a half. Beechcraft. And not only Beechcraft, Cessna, Boeing. I mean, yeah. it was the aircraft capital. Of the oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, it's been a really wonderful relationship with, with Gulfstream. We've, you know, we've been a, a go-to service provider for them. Their projects finish routinely on time and on budget. There's no controversy. It's yeah. dependable. It's surety of outcome. They know that's going to get done. And so... Um, and they're centralized. They don't have plants elsewhere. They're only they do in- actually. They, oh, they, they do? yeah. So like we've worked on one in Dallas where they have oh, really? where they yeah, and they have some partnerships. Politically, they're such a big company. They have partnerships. Like they have a partnership with Israel to build the G one fifty, and so, so there's some there's some you know some sharing with them. So they do build elsewhere. They do build elsewhere, but the majority of it is in Savannah, mm-hmm. and then but, but down at uh, Love Field in Dallas. They're, they have a presence down there. The, the 450, I think, is built down there. And we're building some new service centers for them and some some other new manufacturing facilities. What's unique about an airplane factory as far as development, you know, uh, building one? I mean, doing that, or are you doing mostly office? Or are you No, it's, it's industrial oh, space. I mean, industrial. what's unique about it is it's column-free. It's huge and column-free. Yeah, and right. so you've got... Large spans. Yeah, and these trusses that we... That support the roofs on these buildings are so large that we actually fabricate the truss on site. So you, you bring in all the steel members, 
and bolt them all together to create these enormously long trusses, and then you have a crane that picks them up in the air and puts. So there's them on. a civil engineering problem for you. Yeah, it's a big one, <laughs> big civil and structural engineering problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exciting. I mean, you know, and then that, uh, you know, so that relationship really went well, and then they expanded on it, and they said, "Look, we own a company called Electric Boat. They build most of the nuclear submarines for the U.S. Navy." They're having some struggles really? with their facilities, and they brought us up there. Is that in Connecticut? That's in Groton, Connecticut, yeah. Yeah. and That's Quonset right. Point, Rhode Island. And so I'm proud to say that we've built you know, most of the modular manufacturing facilities for the Virginia-class submarines. We built the building that builds the common missile compartment and the hulls of the submarines and you know, all various facets of it. It's very, very secret work. Do you build the... I mean, they have the Naval Surface Warfare Testing Facility mm-hmm. here in, in Maryland. Right. Are you involved in any federal work like that? Any of the testing? testing? Not in that testing, no, per se. I would imagine that the submarines get tested there. Yeah. But I don't know that for certain. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very, you know, it's the most secret, secret part, right? And, you know, even the guys who build them, the build electric boat, do not get to go on the submarines. They're that secret. Really? Yeah. Very, very select few people are allowed to go on a nuclear submarine. It's the number one deterrent. I mean, it's, they really are incredible machines. And just, you know, from what I've seen and how various parts of them are manufactured, it's really quite stunning that the technology and the things that we do. We're a world leader in it. It's, you know, it's very clear. And I have nothing but pride in the Navy and the people who, who serve them and serve with them. And what, what these vessels represent is really quite extraordinary. And as an engineer and a builder, you know, being able to stand next to a submarine like that when it's in manufacturing is quite extraordinary. Well, it's, you know, analogous to the, to the aircraft carrier. That's right. And that was the we could tour the carrier when we did it, right? But one area they would never take you to was the a nuclear, nuclear power. That's right. Couldn't see that. Can't see that at all. They don't, they don't want you, want you going near that. In fact, those you know at electric boat they don't make the nuclear compound. They make them elsewhere, and then they plug them into the submarine after they're done. So nobody gets to see that. Mm-hmm. I met you when you were scoping the Arlington campus of George Mason University, right? I can't remember the exact context of that meeting, but I could tell at the time you had broad experience of large-scale projects. Public RFPs are, are competitively bid, typically. How did you position your bid there, and who were your competitors in that situation at George Mason? I, yeah, I think our, campus, yeah, I think our number one competitor might have been Edgemore, which is Clark's right. project management division. Mm-hmm. I think they were our number. There were a lot of competitors. Those public RFPs attract a lot of people. Yes. And it's, you know, the, the challenge there is differentiating yourself, right? And it was really, I think, the big project. We ultimately built, you know, the, the George Mason building there. Mm-hmm. And we built FDIC's headquarters there. Right. Um, you know, we have a very long history of building projects in Arlington, and, you know, we prevailed on that. And I think it really has to do with our track record and, again, our ability to demonstrate to customers like that that there will be surety of outcome, that you won't have any controversy. Your project will finish on time and on budget, which is really what institutions want. They just don't want to have to go to the well for more money. Mm-hmm. 
What architect did you work with on that infrastructure? Mm. Do you remember? I don't remember who that was. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, Scott might remember. Uh, he was out there. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I just don't remember who that was. I've forgotten how long ago what that was. I yeah, was it's their 15. school of law now, right? Yeah. And, yeah, 3434 well, the North Washington. the business school is there, too. And the business school. 3434 North Washington right. is the address. Yep. Yep. Any other large relationships or projects you'd like to highlight in our conversation today? Anything else that's of, of magnitude that you want to chat about? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I just think just as a general statement, I think that what we've been able to do is develop a really strong system for that provides surety of outcome on our projects. And I think it, you know, one of the questions you asked that I saw previously was if there was a billboard Right. I'm gonna, I'll get to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. So I won't preempt that, but I'll it, get to that. Okay. So I, you know, I think that really the, the, we spend very little money in marketing, right? And I think what I'm really proud of, and, and as I as I said, it takes a long time to get to a point where we have quality people, mm-hmm. and right now we have the best people in our company than at any time in our history. We have some real superstars here. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can attract them and keep them is if you create a family-like culture in your business, you mm-hmm. treat them like family, right? right? And, and then you give them a certain amount of latitude to work on your projects. And so we really, if there's anything we're guilty of, it's not touting our horn and not marketing. We've been very much under the radar. And a lot of the big companies we work with like that, all right? But if we're going to grow the company and scale it the way that we want to, because we have all the, we have really good systems that are proven with a great track record, mm-hmm. I think now the company is ready to take its next step in growth. Your company's pivoted also in a couple other areas. One is you're doing interiors, and maybe you didn't talk about that much before. And you're also a property manager, yeah. which is interesting. Right. So, you know, we started the business back, you know, the company's 35 years old at this point, And we started, when we started doing office buildings, I've always had a piece of a property management company. You know, when I was at Samus, we had our own property management. Mm-hmm. And it's a relatively easy revenue stream that you can pick up on as you develop office buildings. And so when, you know, when we founded the company and all the initial projects we did, we're all mostly office related. Mm-hmm. And so our, our property management company has 15 properties under management, and they're all office or retail. We don't manage residential. Mm-hmm. And we've done that intentionally. Residential is a whole different kettle of fish. But our critical mass in residential is getting to a point where we may at some point pull the trigger and say, let's, let's also add residential property management here. But it really has to do with Customer service. And if you have property management and you have engineers on staff like we do, we can service our customers and we can take care of issues that arise and be there for them. And so you present, you're providing for them a more complete platform of service. That's really why we we branched into property management. Mm -hmm. And the interiors business? Yeah, interiors. So that's run by Brian Kaplan. And again, it, it's about the quality of the people. And, you know, Brian's a real superstar in terms of interiors. In fact, we just hired another project manager to work under him. He's starting to, you know, it took him about two years of really sowing the seeds out there in the brokerage community, 
in the in the user community to have awareness that we have expertise in interiors. We've always done interiors, but we've never really separately approached it with a, as a separate business unit like we are now. And so Brian runs that. He has project managers that work underneath him. Mm-hmm. He just picked up a big law firm job, 50,000 square feet. He's picking up, you know, he's gathering a lot of momentum and, and, and delivering a lot of quality projects. Mm-hmm. So yeah, interiors is a key component of the, in one of the you know, main divisions we have alongside institutional and multifamily and so on. One of the other key areas on your website that you talk about is lead and green building uh, projects. Talk yeah. about the evolution of that in your in your culture. Yeah. So you've you've got it. You really have to adopt sustainability in every project that you do. I mean, it's really being mandated jurisdictionally, right? But a lot of it makes sense. Now, the challenge for sustainable initiatives is that they can be costly, right? They can be expensive. But at the end, in the long run, if you're a long-term holder of assets, it's the right thing to do. And so we are a green company. We've adopted sustainability standards, and we employ them in every project that we do. So like as an example, most jurisdictions, take Arlington County, right? They will give you an increase in density for if you increase your sustainability. Mm-hmm. We always pursue the increased sustainability. Our projects at a minimum are lead gold, and we strive for higher levels. Mm-hmm. Expand on that in the ESG totally, so the other aspects of ESG, which you, I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so holistically as a company, again, the jurisdictions are looking for you to demonstrate that you've adopted ESG standards, and we as a company have, and so you try to be you know, we really seek out hiring more people of color, to be honest about it. And we really try to diversify our workforce intentionally. We, we work very hard at that. That's a very, very important consideration, particularly in the public RFP arena, that people are looking for that. Sure. Great. So you talked a little bit about it earlier, but let's pivot to culture and your company a little bit. You need a comprehensive team to take on the scale of projects you developed. Large-scale development is one of the most challenging endeavors among human activities in general. (laughs) Analogous to a space mission or medical, you know, research project. And you, we talked about the definition of development earlier. So with your brand broad experience and clear discipline, talk about why you believe it's a worthy endeavor for young professionals and how you train your team to learn the business. Yeah. So, you know, it really... What I've come to learn that's most beneficial to the younger people in our company is mentorship mm-hmm. and really providing a platform where it's safe for them to ask what they feel might be a dumb question. That's really important with any new hire. The first thing I say to them is, hi, welcome to the company. It's really, we're really glad to have you here. My door's always open and I want you to know that no question is too dumb. That's ask great. it. That's ask great. it. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to laugh at you. We'll give you the answer. Okay. It's really important that you feel comfortable. So creating a safe environment for your employees from that perspective is one of the most pivotal things. The other thing I will tell you that is a hallmark of our company that we really stress is integrity. And we really, really, that kind of permeates throughout. And, you know, not everybody shares that philosophy. We bump into, you know, some bad actors probably more often than we would like in, in this business. 
as I said, you know, there can be some predatory pricing on things and some difficulties. And so we, I tell everybody, we've got to set the standards. That's our job. We're the conductor of the orchestra on these projects. It's a good analogy for our roles. Okay. And as the conductor of the orchestra, we've got to set the standard for everybody to follow. And it really comes down to your integrity. Well, you can choose who you do business with and who you don't do business with, right? Right. Yeah. You got to pick your partners carefully. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I think could help our industry is a repository of information on various firms and people you're considering, particularly when you're going into a new market. How do you know who's a good architect? How do you know who's a good engineer? How do you know who's a good contractor? Right now, it's all done pretty much by word of mouth. Reputation. It's reputation, right? And so perhaps something that you know provides a little more discipline on that would be helpful. Well, I, have, I, I didn't have a question about this, but I'll just bring it up because it's become almost as pervasive as the internet was when it first came out, and that's what's known as AI and the LLMs. Mm-hmm. Are you in, at all exploring that corporately or personally, even uh, mm-hmm. that aspect of Yeah, thing. I've looked into it. My daughter, is, who's not in the business, she's, she's an attorney. She's based in San Francisco, and she's in the leadership for AI at Intuit, one of the largest tech oh, companies. Sure. Yeah. And so she's really up to speed on all of that and the ethics associated with it and the privacy and how that all goes handed. So we have a keen interest in that. We have not started to employ AI, but I, I see that that's in the not-too-distant future. Um, so I do think that there's a role for it. It's generally repetitive tasks right. is where I think AI can be beneficial. The analytical side of the business. The analytical side of the business. I think, I think where I, you still need the personal touch is, is in you know, interacting with jurisdictions and the various approvals and you know, just the, the the day-to-day interaction with people and getting things done. Putting a proposal together could take could right. it could be half the amount of time to put a project. It could, yeah, actually, absolutely, yeah. So th- those are exciting things that we, as a company, everybody is looking, you know, to be more efficient, and that would be one of those initiatives. Yes. Mm-hmm. It appears that you built a legacy with your two sons, and you're obviously very proud of them, and you talked about them already. Mm-hmm. Expand a bit about your culture. If you set a family-like uh, environment, what do you look for in prospective employee? Well, so, you know, the, the, there's a couple of things. Number one, we tend to gravitate towards people who have some level of experience. Mm-hmm. All right? We, 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 in we, development and instruction? Both. Oh. All the above. Okay. All the above. We find that people who come from a construction background tend to make better project managers because it's the most intricate part of the business. Not to, you know, uh, discount the design and the financing. Those are both very intricate and detailed. And you have to have a, an understanding of them. But it, I think the construction side of the business probably poses the most risk. And so we tend to gravitate towards people who have that, that kind of awareness and knowledge and then we, we shore them up with our training, it's specific to our agreements and how we run our projects and our system for project management mm-hmm. and our system for communications, which is really another hallmark of the company is, is, you know, you have to have really strong communications. And then finally, it has to do with their character and their integrity. We, we, we look at that 
very heavily as well because they're going to reflect on us. And we want people, and I think you know several of the people here, like Karim, who you know really do us a great amount of justice and honor by you know how they carry themselves out there. In, in and I think it's our family culture and our our recognition of their strengths that allows that to come forward here here at the company. You know, I've interviewed a lot of developers, and <laughs> you and maybe one or two others come at it. From the construction side, different, you know, whereas other people have the, the deal making, structuring, you know, right. the financial, you know, let's get a partner, let's go go in together. I'll hire an architect, I'll hire an engineer, I'll sit down with a general contractor, make sure I know what I'm doing there. Right. But the the economics and the deal structuring right up front is really the critical aspect of the business. Mm-hmm. But you came at it a little differently. It's interesting. Right. You come at it, you know, the construction, we got to make sure this is right physically and we then we'll go get the capital, you know, and do it that way, which is interesting. It's, you know, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat right. in the development business. Yeah. But now, the deal economics, you're right. And the deal economics have to work. Of course. Right. But like you're in a, you're in a point in time right now, okay, where the hard costs are really a struggle. And so what's happening is, you know, those developers who don't really focus that much on construction, they're more deal-oriented, okay? They're collecting data from general contractors and wherever else, maybe cost estimators, who are telling them it's going to cost them this much, and then the project doesn't pencil, okay? And so what do they do, right? They're in, a, they're in paralysis, basically. They're, they're, they're static. They can't really do anything with their project. We, on the other hand, are saying, we, we see that as a challenge. Say, okay, how do we... How do we make this equation work now? Value what engineer. Are, it, it's, it's, it's more than that, right? It's more than that. And it, it's a lot deeper than that. And, and we, we dig deeper into the relationships with the subcontractors and the suppliers and the vendors. And we reach that deeply into seeing what we can do to help decrease our costs and bring value to them and to ourselves. And that process is working quite well right now. So that's what's unique about having a very deep construction background versus an analytical. You've got to have the analytical side. You, you need to be able to run a financial model. You need to understand it. You need to be able to iterate it. You would be shocked at the number of developers who cannot do that well. Okay? You'd be shocked. But you must do that, and you must use that as your guidepost. Okay? But then... If you take a look at the components of a project, okay, what are your major cost components? You have your land, but there's not so much. I mean, once you have your land deal done, your deal's done. It's really understanding what's in the land, okay, that might be, you know, provide a potential risk. That's where your due diligence comes in. But your single biggest component in the total cost of a project is your hard costs, okay? And so that's where your biggest risk is. And so that's why our focus is so intent on that. Because we know if we manage that well, the project is going to meet its numbers, mm-hmm. All right? And I would venture to say that in your interviews, as you talk to developers and you talk to people who are in this industry, that they would share with you that their biggest challenge is getting things done on time and on budget. Right. No question. Yeah. yeah. So you've worked in the D.C. market for 35 years. How do you see its future? What are you focusing your new business efforts on now? 
Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, so the company's been 35 years. I've worked in the DC market for 45 years. Oh, well, that's true. Right? But, you know, as far as new initiatives are concerned, we still, we see tremendous opportunity in, in housing and in multifamily housing. Eventually, the capital market situation we have right now, which is really topsy-turvy, will correct itself. There's an election year coming up. I think some, some good things will probably happen. I think hard costs will correct. So we still see a strong opportunity. The industrial side, AI is driving the need for data centers. Loudoun County is kind of full and there's some power challenges with Loudoun County. So you're starting to see more a proliferation of data centers moving to Prince William County right now. So we see industrial is still as a, you know, e-commerce is here to say. We see industrial as a, you know, kind of a, a strong opportunity. We see multifamily housing as a strong opportunity. We see single family housing as a strong opportunity. Those are the asset classes that we see. We see offices being very challenged. And for those, there's a big push in this, in the country right now to take, you know, really obsolete office buildings and try to convert them to residential. And having, you know, I just did that. We as a company who just did one of the largest. In fact, it won the national award from the National Association really? of Home Builders as the number one adaptive reuse project in the country. Which project was that? River Point. Ah. River Point won 10 awards. Okay. It won every award we entered. That's great. Right. And I mean, it is an astounding project, but I can tell you, it is, you know, if you don't have, you're trying to convert an office building to an apartment building, if you don't have a rock solid construction manager who understands the intricacies of that, you're going to really struggle with How it. old was the original structure? 60 years. Okay. Right. So it's obsolete. So it, the building's too deep. The cores are not in the right place. You don't have enough pipes for your plumbing and your kitchens and everything. There's, it's a major undertaking. Okay. And it's not for the faint hearted. And so there's a big push by the brokerage community Let's just sell these buildings and have developers convert them to residential. It's a very difficult process. Who was your contractor on that job? That was CBG. CBG did an excellent job for us. They're really stand-up people. They came through COVID. There were I, there were times during the course of that project where I'd get a phone call and they'd say, the foreman for the glass crew got sick and we had to send him home. And back then it was 10-day quarantine. Yeah. So we'd lose 30 men. Okay. And then... You know, two weeks later, we know well, we had four guys from the electrical crew get sick or the elevator crew. And it just went through and it decimated. Oh, it decimated. You know, no matter what we did, we put in all special sanitizing stations and yeah. hand washing stations and separating people. No matter what we did, it just kept proliferating. And it, mm. it was really had a, a big impact on that project. Wow. Yeah. We worked through it and got it done to their credit, to CBG's credit. You know, they stood tall to their obligations and Wasn't they finished the delays? job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There were definitely delays as a result. I mean, our glass, we bought our glass for the building from a company called Schluter. They're, it's a German company. They're renowned for really building an excellent product. So when you say, I've, you know, I'm going to put Schluter windows in here, people in the business would say, wow, that's a good product. Okay. It's got a great brand name associated with quality. Their factory for our building was in Turkey. Okay, and so we had huge delays when COVID arrived of getting the ships to get to Baltimore so we could get the product. Yeah. 
I mean, months and months of delay associated with that. And so you had to bring in extra manpower, you, you would accelerate your crews, or all kinds of workarounds that you end up doing. COVID was really, you know, it hit us halfway through the project, and it was it was a tough hit. We've been through a lot of downturns. Was that the toughest one for you guys? COVID. Yeah, I would say COVID on that particular part that was tough. I would say I would say '08 was tough too because it was you know a capital market meltdown. Yes. And so, and as I've I've explained in this interview today, how capital intensive real estate is, you need a lot of cash, and it dries up like it is right now, it's really hard to access capital in this market. Mm-hmm. So those downturns are tough. So the pandemic obviously left society with a lot of changes. I mean, how does that, how has that affected, other than that project, how did it affect your business? And long-term, how do you see it affecting the business here? Well, so, yeah, so we, you know, we have a pretty strong work at home program. And so, from that perspective, I think technology and Zoom meetings, you know, has really helped our business. I mean, it's um, to a point where, you know, we used to, I remember when we were in design on our Joyce Motors project, which is being designed by Antunovich, and they have an office in D.C., we would have to make a journey, you know, every other week, and it would take us an hour each way and a couple hours in the meeting. You spend the whole day. Now we're able to, you know, do a one hour, one and a half hour, two hour Zoom call and accomplish the same thing and eliminate the travel and have all the players on the screen. So I think from that perspective, it's really made our business a lot more efficient. Well, that's interesting. That's kind of the reverse of what I'm, you know, obviously for team building and all that, everyone wants to have everybody in the office and all that. And it's the, I think it's the big societal conversation right now. In our, in our well, industry and in the world. Well, the interesting thing is you look out here and you see quite a few people, yes. right? And so what happens is that people really still have the need for human connection and the ability to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So the default position is that most people still come to our office. I think a lot of companies, you know, are struggling. Like Amazon, by way of example, recently announced that they all their people have to report to the office. Right. It was just it was too many people away and there wasn't enough collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so we haven't had to make that kind of announcement. It generally, people gravitate towards being here and collaborating and understanding about projects or agreements or getting advice from Scott or myself or Ryan. Or mm-hmm. There's a lot of that that's necessary. All right. Let's shift to personal things now. Sure. I'm going to conclude here with okay. a couple more questions. Yeah. What are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? So... You know, one of the things that my wife and I are looking real hard at right now is as we are, you know, soon to march towards retirement would be more of an emphasis on giving back. If you look at our website, you'll see a landing page for all the charities that we we donate to. We give each employee both an allowance of money and time that they can donate to the charity of their choice on an annual basis. And then we as a company you know, we give a lot back. So that's a priority for us is giving back and helping others. You know, I came really, you know, other than the initial seed capital that Pete Scamardo offered to me, I really started with nothing and, you know, built the company through a lot of hard work. So a lot of sacrifices that my family had to make, and in particular my wife, to allow this business to flourish, right? And so it's time now to recognize that and to really place more of an emphasis on her and the family going forward. 
Which and, you have your two sons right, yeah, right to, down the hall. Right, to take <laughs> over. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, the, you know, so we're developing a succession plan right now and we'll, we'll transition into that. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? You know, so don't give up, okay? Whatever it is that you love, pursue it and don't give up. There's always going to be setbacks. Learn from them and press forward. Always deal with a high degree of integrity and, you know, be honorable in the things that you do. And that would be the advice that I would give. I mean, when I was when I was 25 years old, right, I always had this entrepreneurial DNA and I and I wanted to have my own business, but I did not know how to get there. Now, I rode on the crew team at Syracuse. And so when I got out of school, I was this big muscular guy. And one of the things that that did for me is it allowed me to hit a golf ball a mile. Now, I can't come anywhere close to that now. But <laughs> back then, I could hit a golf ball really far. And so what I found out is that there would be older gentlemen who would want to play with me to see that. Okay. And so what I did is utilize that to play with entrepreneurs who had started their own business. I'd play around a golf with them. And when you play around a golf with somebody, you have them for four hours. And I talked to them about, well, how'd you start your business? One guy would, you know, had a printing company, another guy was selling paint. There were all kinds of different entrepreneurs. And I wanted to know how do you get started? And that really planted the seeds in me as to, to shape my, you know, how I go about trying to get started in, as an entrepreneur starting my own company. You didn't have my podcast to listen to at the time, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I didn't. I think this podcast has helped a lot of people in, that, in your age group, I hope. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I think it would. Yeah, it would be really good. Because I've interviewed now 90-plus Have you really? people. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been great. I've enjoyed it. And I'm, that's the whole purpose of to get 25-year-olds to listen and learn yeah. from it. Right. Which I think is hopefully helpful. Yeah. So I'm going to get to the question you anticipated. If you won't, if you could post a statement on, the, on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say to you? It would say it's all about your integrity. That's great. But to me, that's everything. It shapes our culture. It shapes our business. It shapes our relations with people. I'll tell you, I, I played golf with a young man. I guess he's like 30, 70. He's got two kids. He's a member of the club that I'm at. And I played golf with him last Saturday. And he said to me, he paid the greatest compliment to me that I think I could ever have. We're, we're out in the golf course. We're talking to him. He runs, a, he runs a private office, a family office for one of the wealthiest families in D.C., I won't say who it is, but that, that's what he does, okay? And we're friends, and he's, you know, he's a really good golfer, and so we were out there playing golf. And, and he says to me during the course of this, he says to me, he says, David, I, there's something I want to say to you. And I said, what's that, Rob? And he said, well, he said, you know, I got to tell you that in the past five years or so, everywhere I've gone, okay, and I've gone to a lot of places, but everywhere I've gone where you have some affiliation with it, People always ask me, oh, do you know David Orr? 
And he said, I've never heard a bad thing. I've heard nothing but positive things about you and the way you conduct yourself. And I said, well, I really appreciate that. That really is a testament to what I, we as a company are trying to espouse. And, and Rob, I got to tell you, it all comes down to one thing. It's all about your integrity and how you approach people. You know, we pride ourselves on the fact that we're straightforward, right? We look people in the eye. We tell them what we can do and can't do. We're honest and upfront about it. And people really genuinely appreciate that. When we make a mistake, we admit it, all right? And we, we deal with it. We take responsibility. And we, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes. So fix it. That's what we do. We just fix it. We go in there and fix it. We're sorry, okay? And, and we go in there and fix it. So we, I think that that integrity is really what defines us as a company. And I'm, I'm hopeful that ultimately my legacy will be about the integrity of the company and the people that we serve. That's great Thank you very much. You're welcome. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Your effort. Well, this is fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it.